thankful you are here this morning. It is good to be together, and we are thankful for the opportunity to study for just a few moments together this morning, and we are thankful that you have chosen to be here. Uh, we are thankful you chose to be here this morning. We'd love to invite you back, not only this evening as we assemble again to sing praises to God, and we'd love to have you this evening as we uh, assemble with the North Hamilton congregation here at our building to do that, but any time that you have the opportunity or that you're in our area, we would love to have you visit with us, and we have the opportunity to worship together. I think believe we have several visitors in our midst this morning, and we'd love to, for you to hang around for a moment and for the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better and to introduce ourselves and to welcome you. And whether you're visiting or a member here, we're thankful for the opportunity to be together this morning. Uh, our family has been away for the last week. Most of you know that. We weren't with you on Wednesday evening as we were attending at Polishing the Pulpit this week. And we just want to say thank you for that opportunity. We hate being away, especially uh, as we feel like we're just kind of getting started and going with the work here. Uh, in a way, we hated to be gone, but boy, we really feel refreshed and renewed uh, from being up there this week and making some connections and hearing lots of good lessons. Um, I, I told uh, the Sorellos win as well. I think Brian's been going since he was in preaching school, just about and all in preaching. We were sitting next to each other, and the very first session I went to, uh, every speaker got seven minutes, and only seven minutes, and then they had to sit down. And I looked at Brian when we were done. I said, I've got all my December lessons ready to go now. So uh, it's just very encouraging. There were a lot of good things heard, and uh, I feel encouraged by that and refreshed, and we appreciate the opportunity to uh, get to go and be a part of that great work there. I will be gone as well this Wednesday night. Uh, I have an opportunity to speak at a uh, summer series at the St. Elmo Congregation. I actually committed to that back in the spring, and so I look forward to doing that. But uh, even though we feel like we've only been here just a very short while, we miss being gone, miss seeing all of you. So we'll miss you again on Wednesday night. But uh, as I mentioned in the very first lesson, I look forward to carrying the name of Saudi with us as we go around and, and meet folks and be other places. And we're thankful for the opportunities that we have. Uh, we did have a good week this week, and again, we thank you for allowing us to attend on Wednesday night, uh, which is kind of the last night session that they have. The, it ends on Thursday morning, uh, Thursday afternoon, or around lunchtime there. Uh, they play a video with some highlights from the week, and they announce not only next year's dates, but as well the attendance. And this year, uh, the attendance, announced attendance was 5,027. Uh, 5,027 people that were there. And what I want to ask you to do this morning, if you will, is to take that number and keep it in your mind for just a few moments, and we're going to come back to it. 5,027 folks that were there at some time or the other. It goes, uh, went over last weekend and into this past week, so some folks have to leave and aren't able to attend the whole time, such as we didn't go over the weekend. Uh, but 5,027, that's a pretty good number. It's very encouraging to hear that number. But again, I'd like for you to keep that in your mind this morning. Go backwards there. I went too far. When we think about uh, sometimes the movies that we see, and we think about uh, the impact that they can have upon us, the connection that it sometimes makes in our life, uh, this week I thought about a 2002 movie uh, that had Tom Cruise in it, and I don't think it was quite the hit that some of his movies have been. It was based upon a 1956 sci-fi short story, and that is the movie The Minority Report. And if you've got your bulletin in front of you and you're going to be following along with the outline, that's the title of the lesson this morning. Now I'll take just a moment and mention to you there was uh, some debate within my family uh, whether or not it had been appropriate to use a picture of Tom Cruise on the screen. I went instead with just the title of the movie here. Uh, I would tell you as well, most of you received our letter that we sent out um, back when we got started with the work here. Uh, and most of you have found out by now that, that I'm a fan of a team that wears crimson and white. 
uh, and you still allow me to get up in the pulpit here. Uh, I don't know that using Tom Cruise is quite the test of fellowship on the slide. Uh, once at Lake, Hill, I, Lake Hills, I used a picture of Nick Saban, and they didn't fire me. Uh, so I'm not, not going to do that here yet, uh, but I think that's a pretty good, maybe the strongest test of fellowship if you're in Tennessee territory and you're willing to use the picture of Nick Saban. Uh, but Tom Cruise starred in a movie called The Minority Report. And when you think about that, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, I, I've seen part of it before, but in that movie... Uh, the story goes that there were three sort of humans, mutant humans, if you will. Again, it's based upon a sci-fi short story. These three mutant humans can tell the future is what it amounts to. They can predict crime before it even happens. Uh, but along the way through this movie, what they learn is, is that there is sometimes the three don't always agree together, but there is one that puts forth this minority report. And maybe two of them see the future one particular way, but the other of the three dissent or see it a different way. And so there becomes this minority report that goes along with this. Now in the movie, it's very important because people are being arrested before they even commit a crime uh, because of this, these folks that can tell the future. So if there's one person who sees it differently, how is that handled? And that's kind of in a very generic way, the uh, general way, the basis of the movie. But as I was thinking about that this week, it is, I was thinking about polishing the pulpit. I was thinking about that number. Again, I ask you to keep in the back of your mind. I got to thinking about the Bible's minority report, if you will. And what if we were to take a look at the people in the Bible who were in the minority? Because, as the screen already told you there a moment ago, the truth of the matter is the people of God, God's people have always been in the minority. Always been in the minority. Plain and simple. God doesn't make it any other way. He's never been sly about it. He's never been deceitful. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, first of all, this morning. Matthew chapter 7, before we get into our main points here. Matthew chapter 7. We know of all the goodness that is contained in the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. If you've got your Bible open there, turn over just a page or two, maybe to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37. When Jesus gives a familiar passage, he might even call it a familiar refrain because we sing these words. When he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know, God didn't make it very difficult. Jesus didn't, we sometimes say, make any bones about it. He said it plain and simple. Few is the number. Minority is the number. And sometimes that gets us down. But sometimes that can encourage us as well. The truth of the matter is God's people have always been in minority. But what does that mean for us? Well, I would submit to you this morning that we should know that we are going to be in the minority. But it can help us to realize that we aren't going to be the first people to go through this. We're not the first people sometimes in the world to feel alone. We're not the first to be in the minority and struggle through what comes along with that idea or those types of numbers. And what we want to do this morning in our few minutes together is look at some examples of that, if you will, maybe we might call it a minority report, and then make a little application for ourselves. Number one this morning, if you've got your outline there, go with me to the book of Genesis chapter 6. The location for us, 
beginning first of all this morning is Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8 as we think about Noah. Not only verses 1 through 8, but specifically verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And even into verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So we know here that as Noah is beginning to get his instructions, as he's beginning to get his commands, as he is living here upon the earth from the very beginning. I mean, we might say Adam wasn't in the minority, right? At least for a short time. But from the very beginning, we see that God's people are in the minority because Noah here is upon the earth. And earth, if you go down even a little bit further in your Bible, if you're in Genesis 6 to verse 11... The earth that also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. You see, I think this is important because what we like to do sometimes today is we get in the business of wringing our hands. We get in the business of being upset at the world around us, looking at all the sin that surrounds us and wanting to point the finger and wring our hands and blame everyone else and say, how much worse could it be? This world is filled with terrible people and so much sin, how much worse could it be? And we feel like we're the first people to ever go through it. We feel like this is such a terrible thing and the numbers have just grown and grown and grown until we are really the minority. And here in a minute we're going to put some percentage numbers on this and, and I don't know what your percentage would be. Are we in the 1%, the 3% or, or less than 1%? It, it doesn't really matter. We know we're in the minority. But Noah reminds us we're not the first to go through it. What kind of violence are we talking about here? What kind of corruption are we talking about here? We can only begin to imagine. I would submit to you that in a basic way or in a base way, if you will, it's the same sin we're dealing with today. Whether it's sexual, whether it's anything else that you want to list, there's the same type of violence and corruption and sin going on here in Genesis chapter 6 that we would see all around us in 2018. There's nothing new under the sun. But Noah was in the minority. And he had to deal with that. But we see, if you've still got your Bible open there in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Is it possible? Is it possible to be strong? Is it possible to be only one or one of only eight or one of only a thousand or whatever number, again, we want to put on it? Is it possible to be one and be right in God's eyes? To be found in grace in the eyes of the Lord? I would submit to you that Noah shows us that's exactly the case. There may not have been technology. There may not have been smartphones. There, there may not have been, uh, it may not have been accessible in the same way. But there was violence, there was corruption, there was sin. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6 and we find someone who was in the minority. But yet someone who was doing what was right. Number two, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Perhaps you're familiar, even going back to Judges chapter 6, with Gideon. And Gideon's valiant army Gideon's great army you know we believe their strength in numbers don't we you think about even going back to the schoolyard if you were going to try to pick a fight if you were going to try to go up against the bully who maybe was trying to pick a fight with you you didn't want to be the only one 
We firmly believe there is strength in numbers. It's certainly, although our military might has changed in some ways, and certainly now someone can sit at a desk and, and click a button and point a missile at somebody, but certainly when we go back further into our nation's history and think about the military, there was strength in numbers. You wanted to have the 30,000-man army to go up against the 100-man army. You wanted to be able to overwhelm the opponent with numbers. There's strength in numbers. But, of course, we are familiar with Gideon's Valiant 300. We won't take the time, of course, to go through all of this, but as you maybe open your Bible to Judges chapter 7 there, we are reminded that the Lord said to Gideon in verse 4 that there are too many. There are still too many because going back into verse 3, we had gone from 32,000 down to 10,000. And you can put yourself in the shoes of Gideon. You can imagine being in Gideon's shoes and looking up at the sky as we sometimes sort of think when we talk to God. Maybe looking up into the heavens, we would say, and looking at God and shrugging your shoulders or waving your hands in the air and saying, I didn't, maybe didn't think 32,000 was enough. I don't think 10,000 is. And as God says there again in verse 4, there are still too many. And Gideon goes from 10,000 down to 300. You know, it's one thing to be in the minority today in today's world, I would submit to you, when we're just kind of going about our daily walk. Uh, We get in our car, we go to work, we go to the store, we go home, we're at home. Our various walks of life, it's one thing to be in the minority then. It's another thing to be in the minority when you're going up against a bunch of people who want to take your life in that moment with swords, with with whatever else they can have, whatever weapon they can find, to actually try to go into battle with 300 men. And you can put yourself in the shoes of Gideon, and maybe you've been outnumbered before, to look at your opponent and say, what am I supposed to do? And we would feel in that moment like it's impossible. There's no way that we can win a battle with a number so small as that. There's no way that we can be in the minority And come out on top. But of course we're reminded as well from Gideon. That as we see things is not always the way that the Lord sees things. If you look on later in chapter 7. With what you're familiar with. Verse 18 and 19. That as they blow the trumpets. As they take those trumpets and break the pitchers. At the end of verse 19 there. And all of these things take place. And they shout at the end of verse 20. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Then they're able to win the battle. Not necessarily because God gives them more energy or because God all of a sudden creates people out of thin air or because they suddenly grow four arms and they're able to wield more weapons. In God's way, Gideon and his valiant 300, his valiant army, are able to be in the minority but yet come out on top. You see, the truth of the matter is God's people have always been in the minority. And when we look back at Noah and we think about Gideon, that can be some encouragement, of some encouragement to us. I understand that we look back at the Old Testament sometimes, we say, that's not us today. We're not actually going into battle. I don't have to have a weapon in my hand. But yet, remember as we go through this, that God's people have always been in the minority, but yet we see folks who are coming out on top. In the third place, 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, the story of Elijah. When we think about chapter 18 and verse 21, that familiar passage. And again, we were talking yesterday on the way home and Hannah mentioned how much she enjoys looking at the Old Testament. I've heard others say that sometimes. We look back at those great men and women, those great characters, and we find ourselves in their shoes and we think about what they went through. When I think about Elijah here on Mount Carmel, to me, 
this is my opinion, but to me, besides Jesus hanging alone on the cross, to me, this is one of the loneliest pictures in Scripture. In verse 20, Ahab sent for the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah looks at the people and asks that great question. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. I think this is one of the loneliest pictures in Scripture because I don't know that Elijah was expecting to, to, to grab the people's attention and say, Hey, follow me. Let's go. I don't know that he expected them to say yes and this wave of people to go with him. But as he looks at him, and I can only imagine longingly with his hands in the air, possibly shrugging his shoulders, how long are you going to do it? And you know, this gets down to what the preaching really is. Elijah hits down at the very core of it. It's a simple question. We've said it before from this pulpit already. There's two sides. There's two sides. Either you follow God or you don't. There's no lukewarmness. There's no riding the fence. It's one or the other. And Elijah says it to the people here. And, of course, we picture in our mind maybe standing there at the bottom of the hill and a hillside filled with people on Mount Carmel here ready to watch this great thing that's about to take place. And he asked them the question, and they all turn silent all of a sudden. They all turn silent and they answer him not a word. No one will say, no, no, we're good. Nobody will even say that. Certainly nobody says, yes, we'll join you. They just kind of do that head scratching and turning their backs and looking down at the ground and saying just nothing. And so Elijah has to go to this battle, and he gives us the number. He says, I alone, in verse 22 there, are going against 450. But what I find great about this is I think this is one of the loneliest places there in Scripture. Again, besides Jesus hanging on the cross, I think that's one of the loneliest places right there. But when you turn maybe a page over in your Bible to the rest of chapter 18, and for the, the sake of time, we can't go it through, through all of it this morning, but I find one of the most powerful pictures in all of Scripture because of what Elijah is able to accomplish. Not just having the fire come down, not just the things that take place there, but covering it with water. Almost saying, we'll see what God can do. I will show you what God can do. And it turns from being one is the loneliest number to two is the most powerful number when it's me with God on my side. And Elijah shows us that there in chapter 18. But go over to chapter 19, if you're still in your Bible there, and you look on over at verse 14 of chapter 19, because Elijah is down again. He's witnessed this great act, this great thing taking place on Mount Carmel, but he feels alone again. And in verse 14, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And he goes back to the same verse. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now, Elijah has seen the power of God. And you know, I've taught a class recently on miracles, and, and it just I struggle sometimes to think about what it would have been like to witness something like that. To see something amazing happen, to see, see the water parted, to see a dead person stand up and walk again. And then what would you do with that? Because a lot of people would witness that happening and then still turn their back. 
Elijah has seen this great victory won on Mount Carmel with God, and yet he still feels alone. But go down to verse 18, if you're still there in chapter 19 and verse 18. God says, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed them. God reminds Elijah, you're not the only one. You're not the only one, but the question I have for you before we go into our last point is, what's 7,000? What's what's 7,000? Okay, Elijah feels alone, and God says there's 7,000 here. What what does that number mean? What does that really account for? Because the fourth and final point we want to make this morning is actually the 3,000. And the location, if you've got your Bible there, is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And if you're going there, would you look at verses 40 through 47? You know, we get a bad rap sometimes, I would say, in the churches of Christ. People who would say, all you people care about is Acts chapter 2. All you people want to talk about is Acts 2, 38. And there's very important words that are there. But look down at verses 40 through 47. We talk about that as well, don't we? We do from time to time. But look at what's mentioned there. Verse 41 in particular. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I would submit to you this morning that a lot of times we feel the power of Acts chapter 2. We might read Peter's sermon there. We know the power of Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And we feel encouraged as we lead up to that. And we go into Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 and what follows thereafter. And we're encouraged by it. And the number who responds there on that day. But question. Were those 3,000 still in the minority? You know, a lot of times there's uh, an estimate, if you will, that there may have been about 1,000, or excuse me, not 1,000. going to really mess that number up there. There may have been about a million Jews on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, right, do you recall there in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. We know that they had come together here in Jerusalem for this day, the day of Pentecost. Conservative estimate, estimate, whatever you want to call it, there might have been a million, a million or more Jews that were present at this time. Question, were the 3,000 in the minority still? I'm not trying to take away from the power. I'm not trying to take away from the power of Acts chapter 2 or verse 38 or what takes place in verses 40 through 47. But I would submit to you that if we take 3,000 out of a million, there's still a minority there at that time. It doesn't mean great things aren't going on. It doesn't mean that there's not encouragement taking place. But we still have a minority on our hands. In fact, 0.3%, I guess. I was terrible at math. It really brought my ACT score down, but that's another story. Uh, 0.3%, I guess, would be about the number there. 0.3, less than 1%. Minority, we want to put a number on it. God's people have always been in minority. That's the truth of the matter. But the question I would like to finish with this morning, and I didn't put it uh, in, the, in the bulletin there in your outline, but to ask very simply, what about you? What about you? I ask you to keep a number in your head from the very beginning of the lesson. 5,027. That was the number announced of those who attended polishing the pulpit this past week. And I would submit to you, I felt, I would tell you, I felt like Acts chapter 2 there. 
Wednesday night, we're in a room full of people. 5,027 shows up on the screen, and we're pumped. We're excited. There's, there's grins all over the crowd because 5,000 people were involved in this great work, and many more will be affected by it as that work goes home, and, and we bring you some of the lessons and think about some of the things. There are 325.7 million, 325.7 million people in these United States of America. I can't, I can't even begin to put the number of zeros in the decimal place when we talk about the percentage of 5,000 out of 325.7 million. According to what I can find on the internet, there are 7.442 billion, that's b- billion people in the world today. What is 5,000 out of that? What's 111 or 100 and how many ever may be here this morning out of that? I don't say that to discourage you, I say that to try to encourage you, because God's people have always been in the minority. Three quick points here, and the lesson will be yours. If you're making notes, you might write these to the side. What about you? What can you do? First of all, this morning, you can pray. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. You remember what takes place there? Because there's another Old Testament reference as we talked about that. James 5, 13 through 18, it talks about the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. In verse 16 and in verse 17, who do we read about? Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. I can't stand before you and pray and stop the rain. But with my prayer and your prayers and our prayers together, we can accomplish some great and wonderful things. What can we do knowing that we're in the minority? The simplest thing that doesn't really cost us anything but our time, we can begin by praying. Number two, we can rely. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. We can rely. Of course, we should rely upon God, but as well, we should rely upon each other. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I've been considering a lesson on this text here recently. We may have it very soon, so I don't want to go too far into it. But yes, we should rely on God, but we should rely upon each other. We spent a few moments in our Bible class here in the adult classroom one talking about that this morning. Relying upon each other. Showing some weakness sometimes. So that others can see that we're not perfect, that we don't have it all figured out. What about you when you feel like you're in the minority? Well, you can pray. You can rely upon God and upon each other. And third and finally this morning, you can live. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. We know it so well with the Sermon on the Mount there as Jesus is giving us those encouraging words about being a light, being the salt. And at the end of that passage in verse 16, why should we live that way? He says, so that they can see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. What about you? What can you do knowing you're in the minority? Knowing that sometimes we feel overwhelmed by all that? You can simply live. Live your life every day according to God's word. So that people can see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. We can be a light. We can be a city set on a hill. We can be the salt of the earth. If we will live our life every day. Knowing, understanding that we're in the minority. But living even as Noah did. Doing the things that even Elijah was able to do. Maybe not in the miraculous sense, but still in the very powerful sense with God on our side. And so on and so forth as we look at the Bible. You know, we could have picked a lot of different passages this morning to think about. 
to look at all of the different situations where people were in the minority. The Old Testament is filled with them, and there's even some in the New. As the people look around them, God's people, and say, we're not one of the many, we're one of the few. But that's okay, because with God on our side, with the ability to pray, to rely upon each other and to live, we can do great and mighty and wonderful things. The problem with that, in some ways, is it begins with me, and it begins with you. Making the determination, even this morning, that we're going to follow after God. We're in the minority, but we should still be reaching out to others and living our lives in such a way that we are being the right example. This morning, as we conclude this lesson and ask for you to consider what about you, you can't even begin to be in the minority. You can't even begin to do all these great and wonderful and powerful things if you're not a child of God. All the great things that take place there in Acts chapter 2, including being told, the people being told to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. The possibility exists even this morning that maybe you're here and you've never done that. We would encourage you to become obedient to God's simple plan of salvation. If you want to know more about that or study further, we would do that with you even this day. Because it is the greatest decision that you can make and we will rejoice with you. Because you know what? We'll still be in the minority, but we'll have gained a brother or a sister. And we'll become a little stronger as we begin to work together. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that, but you've wandered away. You've become unfaithful. And you know, we are in the minority, and when we're in the minority, we don't need to lose anymore because it gets a little harder sometimes when folks fall away. But we know what happens. We struggle in our life. And maybe you're here this morning and you've allowed sin to enter your life that separates you from God. We're going to be singing here in just a moment to encourage you to make a change. You don't have to leave with the worry on your mind or on your heart of what would happen if your life were to end here upon this earth, even this day, or in the coming weeks, months, or even years. You can rest peacefully. You can have some hope knowing that you are a child of God, walking in the light as he is in the light. We're thankful that God has given us the time and opportunity to be together this morning to consider what it means to be in the minority and to give us the opportunity to encourage ourselves as we work together even among this small congregation, this small community, this little small part of the world that we sometimes feel like that we live in. We can do it, but it takes each one of us. And whether you need to become a child of God or come back to Him, would you make that change as we stand together and as we sing?